Hey, you're on Thursday Eye. This is Alex. Happy Leap Year Special Edition. Today's February 29th. We had a great show today. So great that I got carried away during the recap, and it's almost twice as long as it usually is. The recap, not the show. But no worries. <laughs> as always, if you're short on time, the first 25 minutes or so of this almost two-hour podcast will catch you up on everything that happened in AI this week. If you're using Apple Podcasts or any other modern podcatcher, you could also skip to the chapters that I'm outlining every week and listen to the part that interests you and only to that part. This week, after the newsy updates, we also had a deep dive into something called Matryoshka embeddings with the authors of the MRL paper, Aditya and Pratik. And uh, thank you guys. And I really enjoyed chatting with them both. And we geeked out on why OpenAI decided to release something they came up with two years ago and how it affects the AI industry uh, post the LLM explosion world. So definitely give them a listen at the end of this episode. A brief TLDR, then a full news conversation you're used to broken down to chapters, and then a deep dive after this brief message from Weights and Biases. AI teams are all asking the same question. How can we better manage our model development workflow? The path to production is increasingly complex and it can get chaotic keeping track of thousands of experiments and models. Messy spreadsheets and ad hoc notebooks aren't going to cut it. The best AI teams need a better solution and better tools. They need Weights and Biases, the AI developer platform to unlock their productivity and achieve production ML at scale. Replace messy spreadsheets with an automated system of record for experiments. Communicate about model evaluation and collaboratively review results across the team. Clean up disorganized buckets of models with a unified registry. Automatically capture full model lineage, all the data and code used for training and testing. Seamlessly connect to compute to scale up training and run large scale sweeps efficiently to optimize models. Analyze the performance of large language models and monitor LLM usage and costs with live customizable dashboards. Get your team on the same page to bridge the gaps from ideation to production. Use weights and biases to build, manage, and deploy better models faster. All right, folks, here we go. Welcome, everyone. Welcome. This is Thursday I leap year of 2024. Today is February 29th. Don't get to say this often. February 29th. Uh, and the, this is Thursday I, uh, your weekly AI news update show and deep dive. We'll see a lot of it. Uh, my name is Alex Volkov. I'm an AI evangelist with weights and biases, and I get to do this as and bring you all the ai updates that we've collected for the past week and i'm joined here from week to, to week on stage with guests and experts and co-hosts i have yam peleg with me and nisan tahirai and we're gonna have a few more guests later to, in the show today and on this very 
happy leap year, very special day. We're going to talk about a bunch of updates from the AI world, including big company updates, open source stuff. Um, we're going to talk about that. All right. So here's everything that we've talked about on Thursday AI for February 29th. This was a great once in a four year show. <laughs> uh, I just want to shout out before I recap everything that as always, I'm very happy when folks who build the stuff that we talk about join and talk about that stuff. And this also happened today. So we had a deep dive, which I'm going to cover at the end. And also I will shout out that we're coming up on a one year Thursday I stuff, which is March 14th. So in two weeks, we're going to have a one-year celebration. I'm not quite sure what we're going to do with this. Maybe we'll do a give out of GPU credits. Maybe I'll maybe I'll do some other musical stuff. But yeah, that's coming. I'm very excited. It's been a year and it's been crazy. A year of AI. Maybe we'll do a full recap. So with that, everything that we've talked about in Thursday I for February 29th. Uh, we've started with Open Source LLM, our corner, and we've talked about uh, Google's Gemma update. So last week we covered the Gemma was just released and how the whole community got uh, to start using Gemma and start to think about fine tuning and support on LM Studio and Olama and all these things. And uh, Gemma, it's been a week or and so the demo was out there and we've tried to identify from the vibes perspective and from the fine tuners perspective whether or not Gemma is this uh, replacement for the top running Mistral 7B models that we had, even though on evaluations Gemma looks a little better and performs a little better than than Mistral uh we covered that it's not really 7b it's like 8.5 billion parameters they just counted this differently and we also saw that from multiple attempts from friends of the pod uh, Eric Hartford Technium uh, Jan was here it's really hard to fine-tune the last curve goes crazy and we haven't seen like great fine-tunes yet something from Hugging Face from Philip Schmidt but uh, definitely the fine tuners community didn't yet make this take this model and make it like significantly better as we expected that they would. And they're still working on this, so expect more to hear about this soon. And we also highlighted how much Mistral 7B set a very high bar in open source LLMs, and it's really hard to beat, even if you're Google, even if you have a huge amount of TPUs. We then covered briefly an unfortunate announcement from the information from Meta that Llama 3 will not be breaking news in Thursday I, this week or next week. Llama 3 release is probably scheduled to June in 2024, so not anytime soon. And uh, it doesn't look like there's any information as to why that is, so only speculation. So we definitely covered that this news happened. We then moved and talked about Starcoder 2 plus the stack version 2 as well. Starcoder 2 is from, I think, Hagenface and, and the Starcoder team. And they released a new model that beats... Pretty much uh, DeepSea Coder before this was the best uh, coding model in this area in the 15 and 7B parameters. And StarCoder 2 is this model that now beats those quite significantly. And it, together with this, they also released a Stack V2, which Stack is a, a just a, a huge data set of code from GitHub and other places. And this is like, a, this data set is 10x the previous one. And it also includes opt-out. So you could, if you don't want your code to be trained on and to put into the stack, this stack V2 includes opt-out requests as well. And definitely a great contribution to the open source. It's 900 plus billion tokens in, in the stack V2, which is crazy. And uh, I think there's the duplication, so it reduces uh, a huge data set and uh, supports 600 programming languages and uh, quite impressive. Um, we then also mentioned that Berkeley, the folks from Berkeley, uh, Gorilla, uh, they previously released work in uh, making 
AI's retrieve and, and call functions. And now they released what's called a function calling leaderboard. And function calling leaderboard is very cool because in addition to the MTB embeddings leaderboard that we've mentioned today, and obviously the open source LLM leaderboard on Hagenface that we all look to and see what's the best performing models. Now we also have something that measures the ability of models to do function calling. Function calling started with OpenAI and then Entropic added support and now Mistral added support. So we covered this effort as well and links will be in the show notes. We then moved and covered Argia or Argila. I'm never sure how to pronounce this. They used the Open Hermes dataset. Open Hermes is the dataset from News Research that is fully open, and you can use this in production without being afraid of being sued. And Open Hermes Preferences is the new largest open dataset for RLHF and DPO, so direct preference optimization. Argia used their distill label feature to actually take every instruction in that dataset and turn into a preference instruction where uh, the model would basically learn one or another, which one of the instructions are preferable. So both could be correct, but one could be more preferable. So this is basically a very short version of DPO. And Argia released the largest open source like DPO dataset, as according to them. And they used, interestingly, they used another news model based on Yi34 to actually create those pairs and those preferences, which is super cool. I love how now open source uses other open source in order to rank and, and improve itself, which is really cool. So this is everything we covered in the open source. And then we moved into big companies, LLM and APIs. And the big companies we talked about, the biggest news from this week was if you guys remember, uh, we can talk about Mistral's open weights model in the open source LLMs and open weights LLMs, but Mistral is also now an API provider, and they they have this uh, platform called La Plateforme or La Plateforme, uh, and then. Uh, so, pardon my very bad French as well, they released a huge model for us called Mistral Large, which we only speculated about whether that's coming at some point or as well. And plus, they also released something called Le Chat. And Mistral Large is based on some MMLU stuff, is actually second performing model in the world, getting 81.2% on, I think, MMLU, and second only to GPT-4, so Beats Cloud 2 and Gemini Pro. They didn't add Ultra here, so I'm actually not sure how it compares to Ultra, but definitely now is available over API for Mistral folks. One highlight that we've talked about, it handles 32,000 tokens of context, and because Mistral is trying to position themselves as the leader in at least European, this model is native in French and German and Spanish and Italian, and it's definitely well performing in those languages as well. In addition to this, those models, all of the models in their platform now support function calling as well, which is really cool that we now have multiple providers that support function calling. Plus, we have a leaderboard for function calling, so definitely uh, a lot of highlight uh, from what happens in this area. And also, they introduced LeChat, which is a chat interface currently in beta, on top of Ordell models, so you actually can go and use this if you don't pay for, let's say, GPT-4, and you only get access to three, you can go to LeChat and try their models out. Shout out to Mistral. They also announced a partnership with Microsoft, and for the open source community, this sounded, hey, they're releasing models, but they're not dropping torrent links anymore. Are they still proponents of open source? And they came out and said, yes, we're still proponents of open source. It's very important for us. And give us some time. We'll give you some more models, basically, was the response from Arthur Mensch from Mistral. We also talked about uh, Google teasing 
Genie, which is a model that makes images into interactive games. And that was really cool to see. It, it, I'll add this link to the show notes. It's quite remarkable to see this video from one image of the character in the world. It creates a full world. Imagine how much, imagine like a full Mario just created from one image of Mario. Uh, it, it's quite remarkable. Google also has been in the news lately for the past week or so. We've talked about this, but basically following up of what we talked where Gemini release was celebrated in some areas because Gemini Ultra beats GPT-4 and different things. It, it also released a lot of responses online in terms of how it reacts to certain prompts. And it went potentially also affected their stock price. I'm not sure if that was the one thing, but definitely Sundar Pichai, the CEO of Google, sent an email to the whole company talking about how this release was not quite received as much as they hoped. And I'm using choice words here. He actually talked about structural changes and a potential review of the whole process of releasing this. And they took down the ability to generate people from the image version of the Gemini model, but they also talked about specifically the Gemini model itself refusing different things. Uh, this is in addition to them delivering very well and giving us uh, Gemini 1.5 Pro, which has 1 million tokens in the context window, which I played with this week, and I uh, definitely think it's a great thing from Google. This announced from Google, released in open weights models, and Gemini 1.5 doing like crazy new things, but also the Gemini release at large did not go probably as expected. Potentially the reason why Google took their time to release something for us. We then covered that OpenAI is allowing fine-tune on GPT 3.5 and also that OpenAI responds to New York Times and said, hey, we actually did not do the things that you accused us of doing, but also that New York Times did some trickery and prompts to get the model to respond this way. So the saga between OpenAI and New York Times continues and that's going to be interesting to follow along. And OpenAI was also featured in uh, another piece of news, and actually two pieces of news. One of them is now there's a conversation that WordPress and Tumblr, both companies from the automatic company, daughter companies, they will uh, prepare to sell their user data. So basically everybody who had a blog on WordPress.com and everybody who had a Tumblr account, most of this information probably was already scraped and already featured in data sets from OpenAI, but now they're preparing to sell this information to OpenAI and MidJourney. And uh, similar to the Reddit Google deal for $200 million recently announced. WordPress and Tumblr now preparing to sell to OpenAI and Midjourney as well. And uh, also OpenAI and uh, the robotics company uh, also announced a collaboration as well. Brad Edcock's company will, will uh, integrate with OpenAI's um, models as well. Um, then we moved on to AI Art in Diffusion, which had an incredible week this week with two foundational models, or I guess like big new models that are not Stable Diffusion or DALI or MidJourney. So the first one was uh, Playground. Playground is a was an interface. <laughs> At first, it was an interface for DALI and Stable Diffusion, and they built a very nice, a very simple interface that's super fast. You can inject styles. So they used all this data to actually release a new foundational model called Playground V2. And in user preference, this Playground V2 beats MidJourney and beats Stable Diffusion Excel and beats the previous model, Playground and DALI. It looks really cool. And specifically, they talk about their ability to generate photorealistic images very well and also specifically different ratios of images. So if you think about a standard 1024 by 1024 image for Stable Diffusion Excel, for example, um, or different other sizes, their ability to generate uh, other non-standard ratio models, uh, images, it looks very cool. And in the internal user preference, they actually beat by user preference. They're showing two images for the same prompt. They beat, uh, their V2 beats 
Mid Journey 5.2 and DALI by 9% difference and, and the previous model and SDXL by a significant margin as well. And it looks really cool and definitely worth checking this out. I'll, I'll put a link in the show notes. And the other news that's not Stable Diffusion, Mid Journey or DALI related, it's quite a mouthful to say, Ideogram which we've covered before, announced a version 1.0 of Ideogram. Ex-Google folks who worked on the Google models released a program like a website called Ideogram, and their approach is very participatory. It's very, I think Instagram is the source of their name, like Instagram for ideas. And they re- announced a, a version 1.0 and uh, investment from A16Z, and specifically it's state-of-the-art on text generation. Text generation is something that we know that other models have, and their model is able to put text very well inside images. So if you want like reactions or memes, or if you're doing presentations, for example, I had multiple creators and characters hold like Thursday Ice Spaces. I think we had some folks even react as I was talking with with um, generated text images in in the comments as well. We so this is all we covered in the AR and diffusion until we got to this like jaw-dropping thing called Emo from Alibaba, which is a tease. It's not a model they released yet, but definitely there is a bunch of videos that were to me as jaw-dropping as Sora from a couple of weeks ago. They released something called Emo, which is a way to animate faces to take an image and create a singing or talking face. And it's not only the face, like the shoulders move and everything. So animate an avatar based on one image. And I will not be able to do it justice because I'm still collecting my job from the floor, but definitely I will add some links and some videos. And the coherence with which these models generate talking faces is just incredible. It's not only about animating the mouth, they animate eyes and eyebrows movement and even different other things like hair and earrings. And one one last thing that I noticed that really took me a second was they even animate the vocal cords and the muscles in the throat where somebody sings, for example. And when I saw this, I was like, this is another Sora, Sora moment for being able to create with these tools. It's really incredible, and I really hope they release this in open source so we'd be able to animate uh, whatever we created with Sora. And we covered all of this, and then we had a deep dive with Aditya Kusupali and Pratik Jain, the authors of L Paper, Matryoshka Representation Learning, and they talked to us how recently OpenAI released a new version of their embedding model, and you are able to specify the number of dimensions you want, and many folks didn't understand what this is and how it works, and apparently... Even though OpenAI built all of this from scratch, it was based on the paper that they released uh, two, almost two years ago called uh, MRL, Matryoshka Representation Learnings. Uh, and they, uh, we had a very nice chat and deep dive into how this actually works and how they pack the information, the embedded information from later on dimensions into some of the first dimensions. If you're interested in this area, and this area is very hot, I definitely recommend you check out this conversation. It was really great. And thank you, Aditya and and Pratik and the rest of the Matryoshka team for joining and talking to us about this new and exciting field. I think we started already chatting a little bit, and I see some folks from Hugging Face in the audience sending sad emojis. And I want to send... I want to send hugs to the Hugging Face MLOps team yesterday because for many of us who now work with Hugging Face, and by work, actually, our code includes a bunch of imports from Hugging Face. There's transformers as well. Yesterday was a realization of how big Hugging Face is now part of many of our lives. I think that for the first time for many of us, this was like such a big realization because that imports stopped working and the downloads didn't actually work. And so we actually had a long space yesterday, pretty much throughout the whole downtime as we were holding each other's hands 
<laughs> it reminded me, I don't know, Yam, if you want to chime in, but it reminded me previously when GitHub was down, basically, you know, you, you could work, but if you can't commit your code, what does it help? And I, I wanted to hear from you because I think you had some models queued up for, for some stuff and then you were waiting for them. Yeah, look, Hugging Face is really the hub today. It's not only for using, for most people, I think, it's because they cannot fork or, or clone models from Hugging Face, so they cannot do many things that they do because your code relies on, on getting the model from Hugging Face. This is why, by the way, they tweeted just for anyone that doesn't know, you can work offline. If you ever cloned a model from Hugging Face ever, you probably have it already on your computer, so you can just use the offline version. So there is, there is a command for that. Uh, but for many people, it's cloning the models, but for many other people, is also uh, the feedback that you get from Hugging Face. I can tell you some people are... Some people, some other people here on the stage, uh, that uh, we submit models to the leaderboard, uh, try to get, try to fine tune better and better models. And for us, it's also the feedback of what is going on, where our models are shine, and where we need to uh, make them even better. And for me, at least, I was I had four models that I waited for results for, and many other people as well. And just shout out to Hugging Face for actually doing it. I'm running evolves locally. And I know how heavy it is to actually run them and how much compute it takes for how long. And it's amazing to see that they have such a leaderboard with so many models. It's amazing. It's thousands, like hundreds of thousands of dollars of compute to actually create such a leaderboard. So it's amazing to see. And they provide it literally for free where the community is growing every day. So it, it does cost So huge shout out for them. I was trying to prepare. We are all addicted. <laughs> Absolutely addicted. I was trying to, to prepare yesterday for this space. And uh, part of my preparation is reading X and Twitter. and uh, But definitely part of my presentation uh, preparation is going to Hug and Face, reading the model cards, reading the leaderboards, for example. I was trying to count in my head how much stuff we're getting for free from Hugging Face. And one such example is just their blog, which was also down, which I read specifically to prepare for the Matryoshka conversation today. And that's just like a huge resource on its own. There's the whole conversation piece where there's the hub, but there's also the, the conversations. AK posts uh, papers, for example, they post them on Hugging Face. And then there's a whole discussion threads about them as well. That wasn't accessible. Leaderboards themselves weren't accessible. And just the amount of compute, like you're saying, that they throw at us for free to be able to support this open source is definitely worth a shout out and definitely shout out to engineers there that, that brought the hub back. Nistan, what, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, without Hugging Face, this place turned into a flea market for models. People were asking, does anyone have 172? And I was like, no, I have the fine tune. And then <laughs> the dev lead of 172 pointed us to some Chinese site where they can download it. It was pretty funny that model scope is not <laughs> yeah. just some Chinese side. Model scope is where I think most of the Chinese folks are posting their models. It's like the I think model scope.cn I think is the alternative on the Chinese area. So there is at least a backup for some Chinese like models. Uh, although I think you have to translate that website, right? But yeah, I don't know. We had a conversation yesterday, and Pharrell was also talking about datasets, where many folks just upload the dataset, don't keep a local version of it locally and then to be able to run evaluations or do different things like this that's also was prevented yesterday definitely yesterday we discovered how big hugging face became part of many of our lives and it was a sobering realization but i don't know for me like i saw people complain online 
And I get it, folks. I get it. Sometimes you complain. But honestly, sometimes, as far as I understood, the downtime wasn't even some their fault. There was like a Mongo thing in AWS. I, I'm not sure. I didn't dive in deep. I just, uh, when this happens in my head, when I, I, I dealt with downtimes before in my professional career, nothing but appreciation for, for the team to work hard. And the I think Yam, uh, Clem, the CEO, even responded to you when, when you said hugging faces down, right? Uh, to, to many people, not just to me. Mm. But yeah, they, they are responsive. Responsiveness mm -hmm. and and like Absolutely. being in the community and saying, "Hey, folks, we understand. We're sorry about this." I think that's basically, besides having folks work on this actively, which we know they had, this is all we can basically ask for. So I'm I'm just sending positive vibes and appreciation. I saw some people getting salty. I saw some people saying, "Oh, this sucks," and we need a backup. And I was like, "Yes," but also. This doesn't mean that you can ignore everything for free that we've got so far from, from this incredible organization. So, so shout out. And I don't work there, but I do have many friends uh, who, who do. I think, yeah, Nissan, go ahead and then we'll move on to actual uh, recap of everything we're going to talk about. Yeah, and same for the leaderboard. We give Hugging Face so much crap when things don't work. And uh, I really appreciate it that it's actually the CEO that responds directly to your... Uh, complaints and tickets and it's not just some like support person no it's clem it's the actual ceo they, they'll respond uh, they're the first ones to, to respond so so that's pretty amazing you don't really see it in other companies like we don't expect the president of microsoft brad smith to ever respond to a github issue could you imagine that uh, so yeah he is not your favorite i would love satya though to to chime in on the discourse but not brad <laughs> Yeah, absolutely. Cannot imagine this. And kudos, kudos to them for the participation in the community. And uh, I, I guess we should start with our usual thing, open source. So I guess let's start with open source. Open source AI, let's get it started. All right, folks, this is our regular update every week for the open source corner where we're going to start with interestingly mistral is not in the open source corner is not featured in the open source corner today but we'll mention them anyway because from last week if you guys remember Gemma was released it wasn't open source it was open weights but de definitely google stepped in and gave us two models to run and since then i just wanted to mention that many folks started using these models and there's quite a few stuff that yeah i'm actually wanting to hear from you about because we talked about this the the gemma models are not necessarily seven billion parameters right this was a little bit of a thing and also about fine-tuning could you give us like a brief out like how the last week in terms of gemma acceptance in the community was oh wow gemma is giving me hard time <laughs> this is for sure i'm fine-tuning gemma for or at least struggling with fine-tuning Gemma for a week at the moment. Um, start, okay, so starting from the beginning, uh, Gemma is not exactly 7B. Um, the way it is referred in the paper is that the, the parameters in the model itself, apart from the embeddings, are exactly 7 billion parameters, but then you add the embeddings and you're a little bit over 8.5, if I remember correctly. Um, which is fine. I, I don't think anyone has any problem with a bigger model. Just I think that it'll be less. It'll be more uh, genuine to just say it's an eight B parameters model. It's fine. That's first. Second, it's 
it behaves differently than what we're used to uh, with uh, Mistral and uh, and Llama. I'm not sure why. Maybe someone can can tell me, but I'm not sure why it behaves differently. Um, and many people are currently working and struggling to fine-tune it better. So uh, this is where it is at the moment. Um, I heard, I've seen already uh, Orca, someone fine-tuned on Orca and didn't get great results. Uh, I also heard that Hermes, someone fine-tuned on Hermes, I think from news, I'm not sure, but I think. Also, results are not great. I'm continuing pre-training and the loss is, is doing whatever it wants. It goes down and then out of the blue, it starts to jump. I'm not sure exactly why. It might be because the architecture is slightly different. There are slight modifications. So maybe that or maybe something else. But yeah, I think we're still exploring the model. We don't have an answer yet. Yeah, that's what I got as well. I, I pinned a few examples of Eric Hartford from Dolphin Fan. I think he now works in Abacus and Technium as well. Tried to to do some stuff, and all these losses look crazy. All these losses look like jumping around up and down. I saw a, a tweet from Philip Schmidt from Hugging Face where they were able to to find some stuff, and the conversation from Eric and Wing Lian from Axolotl. And there looks to be an effort to try and, and hone this thing and see if actually fine-tuning this on some stuff. The Hermes stuff, fine-tune, was not really like an official news research thing. It looked like somebody just took the data set and uh, folks weren't able to actually get it to run or or perform well as far as i saw i haven't seen an update from this but i definitely follow up with news so so i i would just remind folks last week we talked about Gemma was well received everybody hopped on board like super quick and added support lm studio and olama added support like super quick uh wing started adding support to axolotl for fine-tuning uh hugging face added support in i think uh, transformers there's a bunch of tree dao added support for flash intention there's a, there's a whole community effort to receive gem as much as possible and they also released some stuff in 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 quantized versions from google so a very good effort from google and then very big acceptance from the community but since then what i'm trying to highlight is uh, a lot of the stuff that we've talked about a lot of the way we judge models whether or not they're good or not is if they're fine-tunable for example is one thing but also if they're instruction following if it's easy to converse with them i haven't seen any of this come across my timeline at all i will be frank i only interacted with the two billion parameter model and wasn't impressed it's great that we released it. I wouldn't, would not be using this for any of my workloads. Nisten, do you have any other feedback as well? Specifically around like how Mistral 7B seems to be still a good alternative, even though it's performing less on evaluations. Yeah, I feel like we have been spoiled by just how high of a bar Mistral 7B has set for everyone. That uh, it even made Mistral Large feel somewhat unimpressive. Although it was answering everything perfectly well. But yeah, not only has it set a very high bar, but it was also very easy to work with. So the amount of innovation that came upon the community, just building off of the initiated weights, has made this class of models extremely competitive that even Google has a hard time cracking through. That uh, yeah, our expectations now for a 7B model are extremely high. It has to run on my phone. 
It has to do what I want. It has to respond. It has to summarize stuff. It has to carry forward the conversation. Oh, and, and it has to score high on the benchmarks too. <laughs> and it this this pace of innovation that the the community has set upon this is just very hard and uh, also incredibly interesting to see that Google is having a very hard time matching or getting close. Specifically because in the land of GPU poor and GPU rich, in the original article that defined the two categories, Google is the GPU slash TPU rich, right? They could and have thrown a bunch of compute at these models and still the folks from Mistral, a team that's less than 30 people that started eight months ago, released a model six months ago. I think Mistral 7B is around six months ago, right? September that Google six months after with all the GPU richness is very barely able to match, not to mention beat significantly, which is unlike any pace that we're used to. We're used to a 7B model beating a 70B model week after week. And here's a huge company coming out and saying, hey, here's our best attempt at the 7B model that Yam doesn't even consider a 7B model. And it's in at least our Attempts to play around with this, it's not beating significantly, which is strange, but also not being able to get fine-tuned very easily. Very interesting and very a highlight of how much quality the the Mistral model was. I will also say that Arthur Mensch, we'll cover this in the Mistral section afterwards, but he came out and he said something and basically said, we can only do so much with 1500 H100s. 1500 H100s. Just by contrast, Meta announced a few months ago, famously... Zuckerberg came out and said, by the end of this year, they're going to have 600,000 worth of equivalent of H100 compute, 600,000 H100s to train and host and probably do inference on Meta and Llama. And this is like 1,500 H100s that uh, Mistro was be able to use and find to a model that Google cannot wipe off the board completely. <laughs> it's very crazy. Moving on to basically another news update that's not a news update. We've been waiting for Llama 3 for every week. I've been saying, hey, it could get released here, and etc. There was a leak from the information. I, I actually don't know it was a leak or not, but the information came out and then a bunch of other uh, companies uh, followed with this news where Llama 3 will be released, I think, in June. This was the update. Llama 3 will not get updated and released for us anytime this year. We were hoping for a one-year anniversary. Llama 1 was released in February 2023, and now we're not going to see Llama 3, even though it's like a finished training as far as I understood, or as far as updates were. And while Zuckerberg goes and eats at McDonald's, Llama 3 will not get released from us. I wanted to hear folks here on stage <laughs> react to this, because surprising news, isn't it? I'm just going to say that I called it. <laughs> <laughs> just based on how, just how censored and unwilling to answer anything code Llama, to was so yeah if when code if code llama 70v wouldn't answer anything i figured it would be pretty it would be around the same for for llama 3 so now they either have to go way back in the training when they started doing a lot of this and retrain it with with it being a lot more obedient but still not horrible or anything because we see from mistral's team that it does obey to you and respond stuff, but it still won't tell you like how to kill your cat and stuff. So it's, yeah, they, the public backlash from people giving it to Gemini and Google has, has completely affected the Llama 3 release, which is just very interesting. 
Interesting, because they did release Llama 1 and then nothing bad happened in the world. And then they released Llama 2 with, with a commercial license. People can actually use this, which kickstarted a bunch of open source stuff. And uh, now they're waiting with Llama 3. Potentially, I heard some stuff where it could be GPT-4 matching model that we could run. Uh, but we don't know un until it released. Uh, but just like a very... Interesting update. And I got to wonder if by the time they decide to release this, if other open source will catch up or not. Usually Llama, when they come out with a big model, it's impressive. But for example, Llama code already was beaten by the time it came out, right? If I'm not mistaken, like DeepSeq code and other models uh, achieved the same score on coding that Llama code uh, was released with. Maybe waiting a little bit. I got to wonder what, what goes into this decision. Which, on the topic of code, I think we're moving to the next thing. And StarCoder 2 and Stack V2 were released and in collaboration with, with Hugging Face. Stack V2 is like the second iteration of the Stack dataset, which was just like insane amount of code collected. I think Stack V2 now includes opt-outs. So you could say, hey, I want my code to be opted out from the Stack V2. And uh, so this new dataset, I think, is 60 billion parameters i want to believe 10x more than the first stack and starcoder the 15 billion parameter model it beats code llama 13b pretty much on every human evil plus and ds100 the gsm 8k um very impressive it beats <clears throat> obviously the previous starcoder which was a very significant model i think based on the evaluations deep sea coder we know was like one of the best code models so far and it looks like starcoder on a few benchmarks competes with, but everything else, it beats DeepSeq Coder as well for the 7B model, but it's a model twice twice the DeepSeq size as well. So they released three models, 3 billion parameters, 7 billion parameter, and 15 billion parameter versions. 15 billion parameters is a very interesting place where you could potentially run this still on your Mac if your Mac is stacked up uh, and get a decent result back. Um, it has a 16K context window. Very weird one, usually like 16384, weird one. It was trained on 4 trillion tokens, depending on the size of the model. Con includes 600 plus programming languages, which is great. <laughs> All we care about probably is Python and JavaScript, and maybe some folks care about Rust, but uh, 600 plus programming languages. I honestly didn't even know there's that many. Percent of human eval, which is okay. I've seen models like get way better than 46%, so that's interesting. And what else is interesting in DeepSeq? It's commercial-friendly license, so you can use this for commercial stuff. It can be used for local copilots, which is something we're waiting for, and the more of this, the better. And yeah, StarCode 2. But I, I also want to shout out that the Stack V2, like the more data we'll get, the better it is for everybody else and other models as well. And the Stack V2 is definitely a great achievement that, that we should shout out. Yeah, this is crazy. The full data set is 67.5 terabytes for the stack V2, and you can just have it for free. Yep. Yep. It's the, yeah, the, the amount of work, so it's 900 billion tokens extra that went on top of what was actually an excellent model, coding model to begin with. So this is, this is huge, not just beneficial from the model itself, but also because you can just, I don't know, fine tune one for TypeScript if you want. Yep. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, I think it's worth worth mentioning that as far as I haven't looked at it in, in depth because the honey face was down, but as far as I understand, it's a base model. When we compare human evil of a base model to a model that was specifically fine-tuned to obey instructions, and we see a result that is, okay, it's not the same, but it's somewhere at the ballpark, it's amazing. 
because it just means that as soon as you will find your needs, it's going to be incredible. Moreover, from what I've seen in the paper, I, I was just, I heard about it and I was sure that I'm going to open the paper and what I'm going to see is something like, hey, we did uh, the same thing, but huge for trillion tokens, enjoy. But no, what you see over there is that they really went in depth into the benchmarks themselves and checked which benchmark is actually, what exactly does it measure, how it correlates to real life usage. They went over there and benchmarked different packages, like each and every one, like how good is it with Matplotlib? How good is it with SciPy? And this is a very detailed and high quality work for, it's very hard to say which is better as a base model, uh, DeepSeq or StarCoder, because there are so many benchmarks at the paper I've never seen before. Even even DeepSeq has, I think, six benchmarks. StarCoder, I, don't, I, I, I didn't even count. There are so many. And, and I think it's great work. Even, I suppose, that the model is really good, at least on the level of DeepSeq, although I don't know. I need to check. But, I, but just the paper alone, it's such a huge contribution, the paper alone and a data set. So yeah, it's amazing. And it just, it went a little bit silent. People just release models that were trained on 4 trillion tokens and it goes silent nowadays. It's amazing that we got num to some, something that's insane. And on the same week, on the same week, NVIDIA released a model. It, I don't think they actually released the model, but they just trained a model on 8 trillion tokens. And we don't even talk about it. It's just insane. Let's talk about it. I saw the NVIDIA stuff, but I, I didn't see a release. I saw an announcement, right? Yeah, it was a paper. And I think that's about it. NVIDIA is showing they got the best hardware because they got the best hardware. So they can train on a lot of tokens really fast. And the model is really good at the end because the tokens. But, but yeah, I'm just saying that it's increasing. The amount of data is increasing. The size of the models are, that we actually use are increasing. And, and it's worth noting that the trend is, that there is a trend of uh, things getting more and more powerful. Absolutely. And I, I would just say this is partly what we're here for, to highlight things like this in the open source and shout out the folks who worked hard on this, on releasing this and making sure that this didn't go silent because this effort is very well appreciated. If it's a base model, then we'll get local co-pilots performing way better. And this is great, especially the data set that they released is like 10, 10 times the size of the previous one. It's called the stack and, and folks would be able to use this to fine tune other models. And that's obviously also great. And on the topic of data sets, if you guys remember, we've talked about Argea multiple times at this point. Uh, shout out Argea folks. And if you wanna come up and talk about Argea, your place is here. Um, uh, they released a DPO conversion of Technium's like Hermes dataset. It's called Open Hermes Preferences. And as we've talked about news research and, and the Hermes multiple times, this is one of the datasets that I think a million rows that compiled from different other datasets as well. And Argea is an open source tool that allows you to make datasets better by converting them to preferences and a DPO. So they released a DPO version, DPO's direct preference optimization version, where basically they take a dataset with a regular RHF dataset with one instruction uh, in a conversation and turn it into kind of a preference where they show a few instructions and they actually have information about what would be a more preferable instruction. That's what 
<laughs> very poor explanation of DPO. Yam, if you want to chime in here and clean this up, feel free. And Argia released an open Hermes preferences, which is 1 million preferences data set on top of Technium. And um, it's pretty remarkable because we know that even news research, when they release DPO versions of their models, it performs better than a regular um, SFT fine-tuning models on top of every benchmark pretty much. And now they've converted all of that data set into a, a preferenced data set. Um, they've created the responses w w with another Hermes model, which is pretty cool, right? So they're using, they're not using OpenAI because scraping from OpenAI is against, as we saw in the lawsuit with OpenAI, it's against the terms of service, but you can actually create these preferences with another model. So they're using new researchers Hermes to Yi on top of Yi 34B to do what's called the distill label and make those instructions a little better. And uh, this data set is open. So unlike the regular thing, Hermes, this data set is open for you to also go and fine tune your models, which is pretty cool. And shout out to the open Hermes preferences. I'm going to pin this to the top of the space and I will also definitely add this to the show notes. No. Okay, let's move on in our conversation. I want to talk about the function calling leaderboard because I think it's pretty cool. Let me just go and find this this week real quick. This is from, I was actually, yeah. There was a an effort before called Gorilla, and um, now the, the same folks from Berkeley released a leaderboard called uh, Berkeley Function Calling Leaderboard. And essentially, um, function calling for, for those who don't use any open source model, but use something like OpenAI. OpenAI, during last summer, I think, answered everybody's request to give us structured outputs in the form of JSON and, and answered them with, hey, we're going to introduce something called function calling for you, where you call uh, our model and you provide one function or several functions in your code, and the model will respond and say, hey, you should call this function and with these parameters. And basically, instead of getting JSON mode, we got function calling back then. Now we have both. We have a way to get just structured JSON, but also we get models to respond with which functions we should call. And this is great for agents. This is great for folks who are building with these models. And I think during the summer, because OpenAI came up with this concept, uh, OpenAI was the only model that was supporting this. And then quickly, open source started catching up. And I think... Listen, correct me if I'm wrong, but I think John Durbin's or Ouroboros has a bunch of like function calling instructions in it. So this this model and then models who are trained on Ouroboros were also fairly okay with, with function calling. Uh, Mistral just released their update. So Mistral supports function calling. Uh, they have about a, thousand, about a thousand of function calling data sets in the Ouroboros 2 or I forgot. Just look up John Durbin, J-O-N Durbin and Ouroboros, A-R. A-I-R-O-B-O-R-O-S data set. And yeah, apparently there's about a thousand entries in there for function calling that's by accident helped a lot of the other models be better at function calling too. Yeah, so every other model that, that was trained on Airbors, which is a lot, Hermes includes Airbors data set. They now, I, I don't know if this is by accident or this is now how things work in the merging world and in the fine-tuning on top of data sets that fine-tune on top of other data sets, right? But definitely other other open source models now, now support at least the, the notion of function calling. And then the eventually we get to the point where there's now a, a, 
a leaderboard like we like. So if we're going to talk about embeddings later, there's an MTB leaderboard for a different embeddings model, even though I see Bo in the audience and he's not very happy <laughs> with how easy it is to game this leaderboard. We obviously look at the open source LLM leaderboards and Yam was talking about submitting a few stuff there and see how it performs. And that's being exploded in popularity and, and merging. So it's great to have a function calling leaderboard as well from folks at Berkeley that tests models I think API only. I don't know if they're uh, supporting open source at this point. The test models and looks at how you could expect a performance on, on different function calling. And I think for folks who are building with this, uh, it's very cool. So uh, some of the models that are leading this uh, leaderboard and uh, um, GPT-4, the, the latest preview from January, is leading this. Um, they have something called Open Functions V2, which I... I think the organization that pulled this up, Gorilla LLM, is the folks who, who put it up, and they have an uh, Apache 2 license, and they have an average score on different simple functions, multiple functions, parallel functions, different scores for all of these tasks. And I just I want to highlight this and I want to add this to the show notes because more and more we see Mistral Medium entering their cloud from Entropic and open source models. And I think for many folks building, agents building with these models, this type of interaction with the model is very important where it's not only a prompt, a textual prompt and you get something back, you actually need to do something with it. And I, I think uh, shout out for, for folks for building and uh, maintaining this, data, the, this leaderboard. And I think they also released the Gorilla model as well. Let's move on. I think this is it, folks. I think this is everything we have to talk about in the open source LLMs. And given that, Connor, given that Storm is in the area of open source-ish, let's cover Storm a little bit. I think this is a good time because it also like dances on the on the area of interest that we talked about last time. Do you want to present Storm and talk about this and see how cool this is? Yeah, cool. I guess maybe let me say one more thing on the gorilla. Yes, I think it's fascinating going through the functions that they have. If you go through the open function, the blog post from Berkeley, you have calculate triangle area, and then you give it the base and the height. And I think that kind of just like super specific functions, having a massive data set of that, it's fascinating that they've seen this next evolution of that. But okay, so... <laughs> So with Storm, yeah, and there's definitely some intersection between DSPy and the function calling models. With DSPy, one of the one of one of the built-in signatures is that React one, where React you have thought, action, and so you, it's one way to interface tools. Yeah, so the tool thing is pretty interesting. I, I think it's also really super related to the the structured output parsing and the please output JSON and JSON, our favorite influencer of the function calling. I, I just want to make sure that folks don't miss this. Jason Liu is the guy who you're referring to, and he is he's our favorite influencer in, in forcing these models to output Jason. I find it really funny that the, a guy named Jason is the guy who's leading the charge of getting these models to output J, Jason formatted code. I just find it really funny. Didn't want to skip this. I want to plug this that joke somewhere, but please go ahead and let's talk about Storm. Oh, and uh, shout out to both Weights and Biases and Connor on Wave 8. The, uh, Jason appeared in, in both places talking about instructor library and how to get these models to give a structured output. So definitely shout out for, for, for Jason for this. Uh, ch check out his content on both platforms. Yeah, awesome. Yeah, it's such a huge part of these LLM pipelines. Like I know Bo's going to speak in a bit, who's someone I consider one of the experts in information retrieval. And one of these big things is like you will retrieve and then you'll re-rank and then you'll generate. And if it doesn't follow the output, Exactly. You can't parse it in the database. So, so it's such a massive topic, but 
Okay, so starting with Storm, I guess I can tell a funny story about this. Erica and I were hacking on this and we came up with the plan of you start off with a question and then you do retrieval. And so you're looking at the top five contexts as well as the question and you use that to produce an outline. And again, structured output parsing that outline better follow the comma separated list so that then you can parse it and then you'll loop through the topics. And then we have a topic to paragraph prompt where you know, you're, do, you're doing another retrieval now with the topics. And then we have the proofreader and then the, the blog to title. So that's the system that we got our hands on with. And I could probably talk about that better than the Storm system, but it's very similar. With Storm, the di- so the difference is we're retrieving from a Weaviate index with Weaviate blog posts. <laughs> Let's make it as much Weaviate as we can. But like they, so they replaced the specific retriever with, with web search retriever. And so I was playing with that a bit on the weekend as well, using the u.com API as the web search. And yeah, it's pretty cool. Web search and as well as a private thing that you curate. I think that's definitely one of the big topics. Okay, so then the interesting thing is once you've got this, in our case, as a four-layer system, now you use DSPy to compile it. So what compiling it entails in DSPy is tweaking the task description as well as producing input-output examples. So, so you have in the prompt, you slightly change it from, you'll take a topic and write it into a blog post. Typically that ends up resulting in a blog post about software documentation, right? So that's what that ends up looking like. And then the input outputs end up being like an example of what are cross encoders. Here's a blog about cross encoders. And so you can use that input output to then reason about the new inference. So hopefully that's a good description of what it means to compile these programs or you optimize the prompts for each layer in the task as you decompose this task into its subtask. Storm then introduces something that I think is pretty novel, which is uh, how you do that research loop. So we, we naively just went question to outline and then just instantly flesh out the outline, whereas they instead go from question to perspectives about the topic and you retrieve from each of the perspectives about the topic and then you'll write it and then it will I'm not sure how it all gets resolved, but it's, so it's almost like a multi-agent system in my view, this kind of like perspective guided to adding personas or like background. So I think that's probably the key differentiator between Storm and then that kind of like blog post system that I described. But so we have open source code on Weaviate recipes. If you want to see what the, what our four layer program looks like and compiling that with the bootstrap optimizer with the bootstrap optimizer is you just run a forward pass through the model with a super high capacity model like gpt4 and then you get the input output and then you hope that turbo or one of the cheaper or the open source models <laughs> can can look at those input output examples and then copy the system behavior there's a lot of other interesting things about this like multi-model systems even in the storm paper they compare gpt4 and gpt turbo and then they use mistral 7b instruct as the judge Another thing is like earlier talking about re-ranking, you might want to have the long context models do re-ranking because with re-ranking, you typically try to give it a lot because you're trying to like put a bandaid on the search. So you, you probably want to have 20 to 100 results that go into the re-ranker rather than five to 10. And it's probably also not really a task for the for LLMs anyways. And I think that's another opportunity for a task specific model. But overall to conclude this thing about Storm, I think, for me, the big exciting thing is it's becoming, DSPy is making it super clear, I think, on how to build more than chatbots or just simple question answering. It's, I think we're probably within a few months from 
Anytime you have a pull request, the documentation will be written for you automatically. Probably you could even have an idea and have a pull request created by the model. I'm personally biased by these kind of coding yeah. applications, but yeah, so, so the, but yeah, this kind of like long form content generation by breaking down each task and then optimizing each part of the task. It's yeah, it all just really interests me. Very interesting. And I had the storm uh, to, from Yijia Shao to, to the show notes as well. And folks are definitely worth checking out because it writes like Wikipedia length articles and uses like you.com API or different other search APIs to give perspectives and, and, and references. And very interesting. I, I want to, in the sake of time, I want to move. Uh, so just like to reset the space, we've been at this for almost an hour. Uh, you guys are on Thursday. I Thursday I is the weekly podcast and newsletter that's recorded live on X spaces. And I'm here with several friends and guests and uh, experts in different fields. And we've been covering open source LMs until now. And I think we're going to move into big companies because we need to cover this. And soon we're going to have some folks to do a deep dive about embeddings. And uh, let me just make sure that uh, the folks know that they're, they can come up. Uh, the big companies, LMs and APIs, this is the segment where we chat about OpenAI and Microsoft and Google and whatever, not the models that they release for us in open weights and open source that we can run ourselves. This is the segment where we talk about API and developments and different updates. So let's run through them. The biggest one from this Monday was Mistral releasing Mistral Large, which we've been waiting for and uh, getting excited about. And also they released a chat a version of their models called LeChat. And um, it's, it's very impressive, folks. Like the Mistral Large now is based on at least some metrics that they released is second only to GPT-4 and beats Cloud and Tropic and, and Gemini Pro on the MMLU score. And Mistral is vastly superior to Mistral Medium, it handles 32K tokens of context, natively fluent in English, French, Spanish, German, and Italian. It highlights how much Mistral is focusing on becoming the OpenAI alternative from Europe because you can go to the chat and there's execute Every chat that you have with their models, and basically maybe you don't have to have an OpenAI uh, subscription. I think that's what they want to do. But also th this model is available in the API, and it's significant performance on top of everything else on the other languages. And th they're aiming for the five top languages in Europe, obviously. And I think uh, it's a very standard, like uh, a very important move from theirs that uh, they're establishing themselves as this big company. This was why we moved them to the big company APIs as well. The announcement also in includes something interesting. They said, we have up also updated Mistral Small in their API to a model that's significantly better and faster than Mistral 8 times 7 b If you remember, when we announced, uh, when we talked about M Mistral releasing API access, we said that whatever Mistral Next is, it's probably going to be medium. So now we have a large model that outperforms pretty much every model besides GPT-4 on different tasks, according at least to them. But also the, the small model that's like faster and better, they upgraded this like behind the scenes. They're not released that any of this in open weights, which is the response from the community was partly this, is Mistral releasing a bunch of stuff and none of the stuff like we expected. No torrent links this time, no open models that we can start fine-tuning. And I think... So first of all, kudos on this release. I've used some of the stuff in the chat and I'm very happy with the responses. They're fairly quick, but definitely giving good responses. Nistan, I think your perspective from before, from the open source segment is very interesting where 
they, they spoil us so much with the open models, with the mixed role models, and and the, the, even the seven B that even large doesn't seem that significantly better. However, just on just on the metrics, it looks like we just got another competitor in the ring. From now, there's Google Gemini Pro, Anthropic Cloud keeps releasing models that are less performant, at least on LMCs, than the previous models. And now Mistral not only doing fully open weights, open source, but also in the API. And if folks want to build on top, they can. An additional thing to this, they also released a partnership with Microsoft and announced that these models are also going to be distributed through Azure. And I think this is a big deal for companies who maybe don't want to trust a startup that's less than one year old from uh, from Europe, for example, and maybe their servers are in Europe. Uh, maybe the companies don't want to trust um, their ability to stay up because there's like only 30 people or enterprises. They need more stuff like ISO and different things. And so I think it's a big deal that Microsoft is now also supporting and, and giving us access to kind of these models through Azure and especially for companies that want stability. I'll just, not stability, I just stability in, in general. I want to just mention that if you guys remember after Dev Day, OpenAI went down for a week or not a week, but there was like a whole period where OpenAI had a lot of issues on production and the Azure version of OpenAI stayed stable. Obviously, Microsoft wants to sell their cloud. And I, I, I do believe there's a very big deal that uh, Mistral is now supported through Azure as well. In addition, Microsoft also announced a small stake in, in Mistral. And Arthur, the CEO of Mistral, and went and uh, clarified. So first of all, their new website with these announcements, again, didn't include some stuff or included a, a note that you shouldn't train on this, right? And then our friend Pharrell here, for the second time, called them out publicly. And for the second time, Arthur Mench, the CEO of Mistral, came and said, whoops, gone. And so it does seem like an omission rather than something they, they put on purpose and then they remove after uh, Twitter calls them out. Pharrell, thank you for that, for noticing. But also some other folks noted that their commitment to open source, which we discussed before, was gone from the website. And they put it back. And so now, like prominently on their website, even though this, this time they didn't release any open source, any open weights for us, this time their commitment for open source is prominently featured on top of their of top of their website. And now there's two segments there. One of them is optimized models, they call them, and one of them is open weights models that they release for the community. As we talked previously in the open source segment, their models from six months ago are still competing with something like the new and, and cool Gemini Pro 8, 8 billion parameters. It's still 32K context window, by the way. So yeah. I measured, and after that, it it completely forgot. And uh, also, it, it it was okay. I was expecting as a chat model to be way more chat optimized, but it does feel more like a, a base model. And uh, yeah, again, I said the comments before. We're, we're too spoiled by all the 7B and, and mixtural fine tunes and, and merges that now this is extremely good and is very utilitarian and if your business needs it you should use it because it provides reliable answers it's not we were just expecting more so one thing definitely to note as well and we mentioned this a little bit but definitely worth mentioning so the smaller model is now better upgrade so if you play with this they also upgraded the pricing for this and I would also caution folks, the tokenizer they use is a different tokenizer. So sometimes when you measure tokens, they may look different. Our friend uh, Zenova here in the audience has a tokenizer playground in Hug and Face, which by the way, with the rest of Hug and Face also went down yesterday. So I went to check just the length of a string and I wasn't able to, it was sad, but now it's back. So that tokenizer, I think measures OpenAI tokens length. 
and Mr. Authentic has a different one. So when you calculate pricing for use, definitely make sure that you're calculating the right thing. Yes, no, you're welcome to come up and tell us about this. So one last thing on Mistral is that it supports function calling as well, which is, I think is a big deal. And we mentioned this before in the function calling leaderboard. And now Mistral models can also respond to your rag applications or whatever with actually the functions you should call, which is, I think, super cool. And the industry moves there and it shows again that OpenAI can come up with something a year ago and basically set the standard for how things should look. I actually don't know if Assistance API is going to be like this, but I do know that, for example, we talked about Grok and Grok supports the OpenAI standard. And many of these, I don't know if Mistral does, but many of the like Together API and other, I think, perplexity as well, all of them have their own version of their API, but also you can just replace whatever code you wrote for OpenAI with just like a different proxy URL. And then you basically use the same structure that OpenAI innovated on. So that, that, that I think is pretty cool. Uh, moving on. Yeah, to, also, yeah go ahead. just a note is that uh, the OpenAI pip package allows you to actually call any any URL. It doesn't matter if it's, if it's OpenAI or not which actually uses that standard. It, it is very easy to drop in any replacement to the OpenAI APIs. Yeah, including local ones. If you use LM Studio, our friends LM Studio, shout out Yags or Olam, I think, both of them will expose like a local server when you run the open source models. And then you can put in your code, like your local URL that runs the server with the local model, and then your code will also work, which is, yeah, thanks for all. This is like a very cool thing that people uh, may have missed. The same can be said, by the way, about Copilot. It's a little harder, but basically you can replace the Copilot infrastructure in VS Code with like local models if they support it, if you go to settings. But moving on to, I guess, moving on to Google Teases Genie, right? Google Teases Genie, which is, a, which is quite incredible. You take one image of something that your key drew that has like a character, and then you provide this into this like video type text to video or image to video model. And in response, you get like a full world that is interactive and looks like this character is kind of in the same style transfer and looks pretty much the same. The character is like interacting in this world. See, seeing this is unbelievable because it just shows that we're very close to being able to take one picture and start animating this. And very worth like adding this to, to the top and, and adding a video for this. It's really hard to explain in words. And I haven't read any, any of the paper, but uh, Genie was really like also mind blowing as well from Google and they only teased it. So we don't know actually if they're going to release this. Farrell, you wanted to comment? I saw you. Yeah, sure. It's if, if any of you have watched uh, Sentex's uh, YouTube video like a few years ago uh, about GameGAN from NVIDIA, it's it's basically GameGAN, but with generative AI. And it, it's pretty awesome uh, because it, it means that we're all headed towards the direction of basically interactive rendered worlds and Sora is one one extreme end of that with really high quality text to video but then what happens when you actually add actions into the loop and that's what basically genie does so we're probably going to see the marriage of both methods both architectures very soon very exciting work for sure and so I think most of the open and big companies stuff we covered, one, one quick thing before we move on, OpenAI opens up fine-tuning for 3.5 and also OpenAI is in the news again this week because WordPress 
and Tumblr. Basically, I think both of them are the same company, Automatic. They're preparing to sell user data. <laughs> and It sounds scary, but honestly, it's all public and probably will scrape anyway. And still, they're preparing to sell this probably more structured and maybe more licensed to OpenAI and MidJourney. So that's very interesting because Tumblr had a bunch of images and probably was scraped to, to an extent. WordPress, definitely. So just to clarify, this is not WordPress, the platform where everybody can use the open source platform to run their websites. That's not what they're selling. I don't think they, they can. But WordPress.com, I think, is, is where you can host a blog for free without knowing how to raise a WordPress platform. So WordPress has the open source system that you can run your blogs and websites in that runs like 30% of the internet, something crazy like this. But also WordPress.com is the place where you can host your blog. And basically, when you signed up and created your blog there, you maybe didn't know the information is theirs to sell. So like Reddit supposedly selling Reddit's information to Google for 200 million that we talked about last week. Automatic is now trying, <laughs> basically trying to extract money based on their data where previously this data was scraped. What's the benefit for OpenAI? Obviously, now there's a lawsuit with the New York Times whether or not this is considered fair use and whether or not OpenAI model, OpenAI's models can spit out full New York Times articles. So there's a whole debate about this and there's going to be a lawsuit because they didn't achieve uh, a similar deal with New York Times. Although it was reported the folks from OpenAI actually did talk with New York Times to try and have more of a, of a structured access and, and uh, licensed access. And uh, WordPress is definitely a huge chunk of the internet. And now um, some of that information is going to go into these models in a more structured and licensed way. And moving on to diffusion models before we jump in, because there's a bunch of updates there. And I think Genie takes us a little bit into diffusion models. So let's see if we have a thing for this. Yeah. AI art, diffusion models, text to video and images, and everything in between. Only on Thursday, I. All right, so as I said before, we don't cover this at length. I know there's a bunch of other spaces for AI art and fusion specifically, but when we do, it's because something very big happened. And this week was a huge week as well. And so I just want to shout out that we had two foundational models, basically. And then another thing that just broke my jaw, and we're going to talk about this, Playground. Playground from the previous uh, Suhail Doshi, I think is his last name, um, he previously was in Mixpanel. He started building a browser called Mighty, and then he switched fully into AI. And I think a year ago, started working on Playground. Playground is an interface that like super fast and lets you generate a bunch of images. And it's just an yeah. interface on top of, or at least previously was an interface on top of DALI and Stable Diffusion. And they kept giving away for free all of these models and image generation. And basically they collected, they added styles, etc. And they've collected all this information of what people actually do preference on. And now they released an open model, a new diffusion foundational model, which we haven't had for a while. If you, if you guys remember, we talked about SDXL Lightning, which is based on SDXL. We've talked about um, Stable Cascade, which is also related to stability. We haven't had like, like an open model for generating images in the wild for a while and playground released their model called playground v2.5 and the cool thing about this is that they say first of all it looks great on realistic stuff secondly they say that on user preference on internal a thousand tokens 
they significantly beat the baseline for DALI, for Midjourney, for for the previous version of Playground and SDXL as well. And by significant, they they beat internal preference again. SDXL 1.0 gets like 17%, and their model, the new model, gets 82%. Which is like a quite stark, like a big jump in in capability and in improvement as well. They also get improvement on top of Midjourney, the latest of 5.2 version, which Midjourney is like really good and realistic. And so what they excel at is realism and just different. I think they also mentioned different ratios. So if like most of these image models, they've been trained with certain uh, 1024, but 1024 for SDXL, for example. And uh, when they generate something in a different ratio, it looks different. So they also claim that their model is actually significantly more performant, different ratios as well. Definitely shout out to Playground folks for working on this awesomeness because who's going to say no to another model? And there's a demo from, I think, Model Labs that actually makes this work really fast. If you guys remember last week, I talked about a, a thing that I built with SDXL Turbo and, and Grok. And obviously, SDXL Turbo is super fast, or sorry, SDXL Lightning is super fast. Uh, compared to those super fast examples, the playground image generation is just night and day. It just looks so real. It, it, it's quite quite striking. So if you're looking for any updates in that area, definitely check out Playground. And I think because uh, it's a model they released, you can use it for free. The only thing that I don't know about is the support in the community kind of stuff, if it supports Comfy UI or stuff, stuff, some stuff like this, but they just released it. So I'm sure support will come. And obviously the LoRa's and everything else in, in, in this community is very interesting to see. There's also a Hugging Face demo. And then the second thing in image generation, real quick, is Ideagram. Ideagram, we've talked about before. It's a uh, startup that uh, came out of folks who worked on the image and stuff at Google and apparently weren't very happy with the slowness of the release. And while Google and its image generation is suffering from bad news and is in hot water uh, because of different prompt injection that they had and even we didn't mention this but uh, mentioned this in the beginning Sundar Pichai released an email to all of Google and said hey we, we had mistakes we offended some of our customers we need to do organizational changes which is not a small thing from a head of the company to admit this bad of the release Ideogram was created with folks from Google before and they released it for free and I think they just renounced Ideogram 1.0 and the best thing about this I think is just text they everybody is you know, focusing on different things but if like all these models they generate text to some extent dali can do text but it's not like perfect ideograms text generation is super cool i really so far i used it multiple times just to answer somebody on x reply with just a text for example like for hug and face i think i sent them like a thank you note with just text and it's really cool to have a model that's like very good at presenting and, and generating text with the imagery that you want uh, so ideogram 1.0 they also announced a investment from a16z and really their text looks super cool i was able to do something that not other models could do i was able to uh, ask it to generate a hashtag thursday i and if you think about this text is not in the training set because you know we came up with the, with the concept and a hashtag like confuses these models and i think this was the first model that was able to actually uh, not screw up hashtag thursday i um, fully Cherry pick still, so three out of four still wasn't like perfect, but definitely this is the best text model that we have. Um, Ideogram, also, check it out. Just yeah, go ahead. Just, yeah, just randomly in the audience, I, I noticed we have one of the creators, I think it was one of the top 10 hugging face spaces pretty recently. So they're the data out of GPT-3 
And uh, they also have a what's called a DALI three uh, data set, uh, training data set. But yeah, they they released a new model uh, recently too. I posted it up Proteus. So if we have some time after the interview, maybe we can bring them up and stuff. Yeah, let's see if where our second guest is. Oh, he says he's going to join ten minutes or so. So we have a little bit more. And the last thing that I want to cover, and actually want to actually go to my profile and paste this because you guys. You have to see this. And if you haven't seen this, okay, so first of all, I'm going to post an image of, I'm adding this onto the show notes now, is the last pin tweet, image of <laughs> very happy sheep that all say we're doomed. And no, this is not the one I said, this sure does. Hold up. Yeah, this one, we're doomed. And the text there is really cool. And the cool thing about the text is style transferred into the image itself. So it looks like part of the image. But this is not what I want to post. I wanted to post the jaw-breaking video from Alibaba, from a model that they teased and hopefully will release soon called Emo. And uh, folks, I don't have a button for this. I don't have a musical tradition. I will just say that if you remember, and if you were here on, on Thursday night when Sora was announced and released, if you guys remember, this was live, I think two weeks ago, we had Sora release and we were just like freaking out li live on stage here on Thursday night because like our jaw was collectively breaking from what we were seeing. Sora showed a significant jump in capability for image sorry image to video or text to video generation and coherence throughout the scene and longer generations and since then openai has been sora posting that's what i call it sora posting on tiktok so if you're on tiktok and you don't follow openai they literally opened a full account they just post sora videos on or sora posting on tiktok and since then, the amount of videos that they released there just shows the capabilities of that incredible model. It does look like the ChatGPT moment for video generation based on what they released. I think that Emo from Alibaba is definitely one of those moments. And actually, it's really funny because the Alibaba folks took one of the Sora-generated videos. If you remember, one of the main ones is a woman, not the main ones, one of the first ones is a woman walking through Hong Kong wearing sunglasses and it zooms into her face. All of this video generated. It's quite crazy that we're now like, oh yeah, of course it generated the woman walking to Hong Kong wearing glasses, but it's still mind-blowing. So the emo folks from Alibaba, they took that video, took a still from that video, just a still, not a whole video, and made that exact woman sing Dua Lipa song. And this is now pasted on top of the uh, on top of the space. And folks, my jaw dropped when I saw this and then dropped again because I started looking at all the details. I did a little deep dive into image generation, avatar creation, basically taking the image and, and making it sing or lip sync. And usually those models, they, they move maybe the, the mouth a little bit. Some of them move the eyes. This model makes this from, from one image, one image only. It makes the eyes move independently. It makes the eyebrows move independently. Obviously the mouth I saw earrings get animated. I saw vocal muscles in the throat get animated where if somebody talks or sings, you can see their throat move differently. I'm noticing all, this, all these things. The woman in the video that I'm referring to wears sunglasses. So most of these models would move the sunglasses to an extent. These sunglasses like stayed exactly the same place. So the coherence of this model is way beyond anything that I've seen. And I've researched this field and I used DOD, DAD, I used WAF2Leap, I used all these like tools. And just the creation would be able to use with something like Sora plus something like this emo thing. It just opens new horizons. And many of my friends in AI art are looking at this and like in disbelief because it really feels like the Sora moment as well. So I just want, I, I wanted to highlight how exciting this was for me and how, how huge of a jump this was from everything we've seen before. 
reactions from folks on stage? What do you, what, what do you think when you saw emo? Same as me, existential dread. Anything else? Yeah, same as me. All right, so uh, it looks like our yeah. Listen, go ahead and I'm gonna take a look. I just want something like this that's like small, real time, and cartoonish. I just use it as an assistant. That would be great. Oh. I'm I'm impressed, but I I just want like a small, tiny one. I want Clippy. I want the actual Clippy. <laughs> <laughs> they didn't animate Clippy, but I found it very interesting that they animated the Sora-generated uh, woman with the voice of Mira Murati, the CTO of OpenAI. They like took her voice and embodied one of their creations w- with this voice. And I found this like very interesting uh, choice on their part. I-, I will say while Aditya comes up, Aditya, if you can hear me, I'm sending you a request. And if you cannot, oh yeah, there is. I found it very interesting that they haven't released the model yet, but they did say we're committing to open source. We're going to release this and their GitHub for ego is open, but there's no commits there. It's just like a readme. So hopefully they're going to release this and hopefully we'll get to a point where we can actually, listen, like you're saying, have a actual assistant in near real time with a fake voice or generated voice actually read out whatever LLMs uh, tell us. And I think this last thing I'll say here before we move on to the interview is this adds to this notion that I think we saw from Logan from OpenAI where a chat is not the final interface for these things. I think embodiment like this is uh, one thing that moves us forward all right folks this has been the updates and now we're moving to a, a more of a deep dive interview and i'm very happy to introduce two guests here and two guests i'm getting a little winded so uh, f- forgive me but i, I want to say hi to aditya kusupati and pratik jain and uh, thank you and folks uh, feel free to unmute yourself and, and talk and call out but basically welcome pratik welcome aditya how are you guys yeah thank you alex Thanks so much, Alex. Thanks, everyone, for listening. I, I'm i going to set this up. And I think, Pratik, I, I noticed you on my timeline first, and then uh, I, I saw Aditya's tweets as well, where we've talked about OpenAI's new embedding models. And one of the things that was like very interesting back when they released this, and this is how I got to, to, to talk with you guys, is they added some new parameter in their new models. So they had ADA002 before, and then they said, hey, we're like releasing two new models, uh, embeddings version 3. And they have a way to specify dimensions. And so previously on Thursday, I, we, we talked about embedding models. We talked about the MTB leaderboard that Hugging Face has. We, we have uh, folks from GenAI that, that also release like top of the line uh, embedding models as well in, in you know, Friends of the Pod. And, and we definitely looked at open source models and uh, in comparison to something closed source, like, for example, OpenAI. And dimensions were a big thing in that whole area. Then OpenAI released something that you can specify number of dimensions. And this raised an eyebrow and was like, oh, that's interesting. I don't even know what this is about. And then I think, Pratik, I saw your tweet saying, hey, congrats, OpenAI. Uh, Unfortunately, you didn't mention us. And then somebody from OpenAI reacted and said, oh, actually, yeah, we do use something called MRL. And they added this to the blog post. Pratik, could you talk about that before we dive in on what MRL actually is? Could you talk about what they added and why? <laughs> and yeah, just talk about this this phenomenon of them not adding you to the blog post. They had done the work on their own and everything. It's just, and they did release like really strong embeddings. Like the results on MTAB well boards looked really good. Definitely many congratulations to that. them. Only thing was that they had released this new thing, as you mentioned, called shortening embeddings. 
and the output structure in some sense seems very similar to what Matryoshka representations or these nested representations do. And we do know that they were at least aware of Matryoshka representations because through some of our earlier conversations, at least some of the research scientists had reached out to us and had talked to us about some of the details about Matryoshka representations. It's felt a little bit like against the spirit of open science and pushing a scientific boundary. So that's the only reason we highlighted that it would be good if either the the initial work can be either cited or maybe use the same name. I think they were very gracious. In particular, the person who had written the blog, I think they said that, yeah, there was a miss on their part and they have updated the blog. All good. I think when we do open re- research and publish and discuss ideas, I think it moves the field very fast and helps everyone. We are definitely all up for it. Yeah, absolutely. I want to talk about when you guys released MRL. This was way before the explosion of LLMs and ChatGPT came to the scene, right? You released MRL, Matryoshka representation back in 22, right? Almost two years ago, like a year and a half ago? Yeah. And so talk to us, maybe give a brief explanation of what, like, I think folks are generally okay with embeddings in in the audience here, but maybe dimensionality is still somewhat of an escaping field. Would one of you tackle the task of explaining what dimensionality means in a very, like, popular science way so we can then dive into how adjusting dimensionality actually helps performance and different things? So generally what happens is if you have, say, some text data, right? So let's say you have a string of 1024 tokens, or let's say you have an image, a 64 by 64 image, what we, like what computer in some sense would want to see them as a set of numbers or a vector of numbers. Through this incredible line of work around embeddings, what we are able to do is we are able to embed these images or text or whatever data object you have into a fixed dimensional vector. So by that, what I mean is, you might have a 64 by 64 image, but you can write that as a series of, let's say, 128 vector numbers, right? So that is what we call dimensionality. That is, it is 128 dimensional vector that we want to work with. Why is this interesting? Because if you have a 64 by 64 image and you just change some pixels, let's say only 1% of the pixels, those changes would not even be visible to you. But when you compute, let's say, the distance between uh, these two images along pixel space, that is, if you just subtracting two images from each other, pixel by pixel, the distance might seem very large. But in reality, semantically, both of them mean essentially the same. So what we ideally want is some of these embeddings which capture the underlying semantic structure of the data object of, let's say, image. Let's say there are two images, both of them contain cat in very similar pose. We would want to have them being represented within our machine as very similar sort of objects. And that is what these embeddings or semantic embeddings are able to do. So generally, there are multiple techniques to take, as I said, either the image or text or audio, whatever you have, and embed it into, say, a fixed dimensional representation that is a fixed number of floating point or integers. Now, generally, these representations are like rigid, they are fixed. That is, that is, let's say a person, a designer has to a priori say that, okay, I can deal with the 128 dimensional representation for my image. And on basis of this, I can run some sort of classifier or some sort of retrieval algorithm to retrieve similar images or classify the image into some particular class. Uh, so generally, that decision is made a priori that I will be forming it into 120 dimensions because 128 dimensions, let's say, are able to give me the accuracy I want. 
and I will be able to deploy them in my system because that's another sort of key part. Uh, whenever you are deploying them, uh, the dimensionality of the model of the embedding can be a, a critical thing. Let's say if you want to do retrieval, the cost of retrieval is almost directly proportional to the dimensionality of the data point. So we so the decision is made a priori. So for example, like earlier embeddings that uh, came out from OpenAI, they made that decision that, okay, these embeddings should, let's say, be, I think, 1024 dimensional or something like that. So you just had those 1024 dimensional. And not so good part about that is that now everybody who wants to use those embeddings have to change their system to suit their 24 dimensional representation. So some people who might be running, say, some sort of retrieval engine on 64 dimensions, they will need to now scale up everything, change how they are doing retrieval, how their indexer works, how their serving works to fit to those 1024. And that's not ideal, right? So the idea behind uh, Matryoshka representations was that can we bring flexibility in these embeddings? That is, while we are giving out 1024 dimensional embeddings, can somebody come and read off just 64 coordinates out of it so that like, they don't need to change their entire serving stack? So it's I want to slide in here with a question before we get to your guys' solution in dimensionality, flexibility, which is very cool. So you're saying the priori decision basically means that I as a developer, let's say, if I used whatever OpenAI has given me or any other uh, rigid structure, I had to basically abide by their rules of how much they decided, how in-depth those embeddings represent my concepts, correct? And could you talk about, maybe before we, we dive into like dimensionality, how this affects actual retrieval is more embeddings always better. There's a thing that I heard yesterday that somebody mentioned. It's called the curse of dimensionality. And I, I really wanted to dive in and, and hear about what this means. Is Because we've talked before, and there are embedding models with like 8,000 dimensions or so. And I heard from Bo, who's in the audience here, who may join us as well, that's not always the best case. For many reasons, not only speed as well. Could you talk about the curse of dimensionality and is more always better? Yeah. So that's a great question, uh, right? So definitely more dimensions intuitively should help you capture more and more information about the data that you are trying to embed. Obviously, like beyond certain point, it becomes starts to becoming complete noise, right? So for example, even if you go back to the image example that I was giving, you have a 64 by 64 image. You can think of it that as a 3600, like about 3600 dimensional vector, right? And if you want like a very precise embedding, then maybe that 3600 dimensional vector is what is capturing everything about that image because that is rough. That's precisely how we are seeing that data point, right? But the bad thing about that sort of representation is that it is not capturing the semantic information. It is also bringing in a lot of noise. You would, there's some sort of sweet spot at what kind of dimensionality of data you want to stop at, right? That's one part of it. But when you come up with these representations, they are going to be used in some downstream task, right? As I mentioned earlier, some of the downstream tasks are, I have this representation of the image, now do classification for me. So I will run in some sort of classifier on top of this representation of the image to say that, okay, whether this image has a cat or a dog, right? Similarly, I can say that, okay, I want to retrieve most similar image to this given image in my database of all the images. So I might have an entire database of animals. I give you an image of particular cat and I want to retrieve a cat which is most similar looking, maybe in similar pose, similar situations, right? So these models or these embeddings are used in this downstream task. And to use them in these downstream tasks, we need to, we are also then bound by 
the realities of those downstream tasks for example if you want to do classification and you have only let's say 200 data points to train the classifier then a very high dimensional embedding is not great because that will then give you very poor performance like your model will overfit it will just like mimic whatever it is seeing on training data and it will not generalize to new test points so it can be catastrophic similar situation happens in even in your retrieval or nearest neighbor search kind of thing there that is if you have very high dimensional embedding as you mentioned earlier like there is this curse of dimensionality that applies which might mean that my nearest neighbor search is not working well especially if i'm doing any kind of approximation and i might get essentially garbage of that situation so that's why based on the downstream task the the amount of training data i might have the uh, the serving reality is there that okay how much latency i can spend or how much compute i can spend in serving i might have a sweet spot into that okay this is the dimensionality that works best for me and i want to ideally want to select that and work with that I see. And Aditya, it looks like you can now join. I also wanted to follow up with you because Pratik is talking about, and Pratik, the examples you gave are image embeddings, and that's great. But I think one of the huge things that happened since you guys raised the paper is how much LLMs are being used for different things as well, right? And I think this led to an explosion in vector databases and they store embeddings. And I think at least for many of the developers who use these like LLMs, text embeddings, or at least they started with text and now it's like multimodal. This is like the highest, the highest use currently in RAG. Would you, maybe Aditya, would you want to expand on how much this whole field has started heating up with like vector databases now storing every embedding? I definitely didn't hear about this up until a year ago. Would you want to like chime into this and how your work is now like super relevant to, to this whole new world? Yeah, yeah, as Pratik said, I think Curse of dimensionality even applies in vector databases because you have to search through things. And the major thing is you also need to think about storage, right? So let's say you want to index a billion documents. And if you want to do everything with, say, 1024, you're going to have to use about a terabyte or four terabytes worth of data for storage. And a lot of people might not be willing to do that. So how people typically do that in vector databases is they store one copy and when they're trying to do some processing on top of it, they do some sort of compression. It can be a lot of things and uh, it works great. But the thing is, it's it's a lot of post-processing and you also need to store the actual embeddings in your vector database store. I think with the data which keeps growing and growing and there is no way for you to control the total amount of data, you should probably figure out a way to make your representations much more compact, much more accurate. I think that is where a lot of oversight was there for the last few years. Again, vector databases existed even before last year, but they blew up because of the RAG applications. And I think in Matryoshka case, as OpenAI said, it gives you the flexibility to just store 64 dimensions if you want, and that should just be it. And 64 is way smaller than the previous dimensionality that they said, I think. 1053 or 1024 or so and also yeah. I, I i would be remiss if not to mention that video is coming into play right now like these large multimodal models now they're not only understanding text and images now like we're talking about video embeddings for example and being able to represent those and when you talk about storage costs etc dimensions definitely affect that and also speed of retrieval and comparison so Aditya, let's move on to talk about because you guys wrote the paper before this explosion but definitely the concepts existed i want to hear about what matryoshka representations is and how it affects dimensionality specifically from being able to choose during which process and i would love to hear from you the brief explanation that 
then we can dive in and, and ask more questions. Sure. Let's take the running example, Pratik said. Let's say there is a 1024 dimensional representation of your image, or let's like let's keep it to 1024 for now. And so you're trying to basically fit a bunch of learned attributes. So it could be some version of color, some version of uh, texture, etc., which is being fed into these things. So that is what these embeddings are learning. And they're extremely good in a lot of semantic tasks. If you want to find a similar looking dog, it's much more easier for you to search in this space. So that's the goal, right? Ideally, until now, when you wanted to do things faster, you took these embeddings and you did some sort of compression, most likely some notion of PCA or low dimensional projection or some sort of quantization, okay? And that's how you used to do it. So there is an additional processing overhead on top of the existing embeddings for you to get this done. We wanted to fix this problem because this additional overhead need not always give you the most accurate solutions. So the motivating goal for us was to figure out if we can pack the information in this 1024 such that we don't have to project it into low dimensional space or do any post-processing to get a 64 dimensional embedding, but rather just take the first 64 dimensions of this vector. So if there is a collection of 1024 numbers, I want you to be able to cut it off at the first 64 and say this is a 64 dimension embedding, which is as good as any 64 dimension embedding you can ever build. That makes sense. And this was the goal. So this is the final embedding should look like this. And that is what we try to do. And it turns out training these things are so simple that it's literally what you think. If you want the 64 dimensions of the first 64 dimensions to be the most important thing, you optimize the same loss function you're doing per 1024 on the 64 dimensions. Let's say you're doing some text embedding training where you're trying to pull two relevant text embeddings together and two uh, irrelevant text embeddings farther. And there is a loss which is typically contrastive, which tries to do this in 1024 dimensional space. At the same time, when you're doing this 1024 dimensional space, you also do it for 64 dimensional space. That's it. So you now have two losses instead of one. And at the end of the training, which again does not take any other extra cost than as if you're training a 1024 dimension embedding, will give you the first 64 dimension embeddings, which are as good as any 64 dimension embeddings you can ever train. And that's pretty much it. So you can repeat this for multiple dimensions. So not just 64, you can do 64, 128, 256, and so on. Now you have this chunks of representations inside this 1024, which can cater to a wide variety of audience depending on their use cases. And a lot of times people don't care about precision. If recall is all you care about in your retrieval applications, you can just use 64 dimensions. And if you want more precise information, as Patik said, you can encode more information in higher dimension embeddings, go to 1024. If you have lesser number of data points and you're not able to cluster things properly, go for smaller dimensions. So the flexibility just opens up so many things which were probably infeasible before in hand because you had to do some sort of post hoc compression or pre-processing on top, post-processing on top of it and which led to slightly lesser accurate things. So you, it just didn't allow you to do all of these things on the fly. Well, just to sum up to see if I understand this, I'm looking at, and unfortunately this medium is audio only, but I think it's very helpful to to, to, to see visual representation of this. You're basically front-loading all most of the important information in the, the first 64 dimension, 128 dimension. And you're saying that precision for specific use cases like RAG could still be 
as good as like with 124 dimension. And that sounds to me incredible. Let's take an example, right? Mm-hmm. Like in your rag, all you care about is 10 blue links, which need to be in the top 10. That's it. You don't care if the first link is the first one or the last link is the last one. There is some evaluation saying that there is a, a utility for positionality. But most of the cases, if you get 10 relevant documents in any order, that's all that you matter. You don't care if the best document is at the top or at the 10th link. So if you feed in all of these things into your LLM, LLM will figure it out. So if this is the case of recall. You don't care about precision. So your ranking only cares about getting the most relevant 10 documents in the first 10 and not how relevant they are in within themselves. I see. I want to also... Just to add a little bit more nuance there, in many situations, what might happen is in your rag, rather than even getting, let's say, top 10 links that... that Suppose I get top 100 links, right? And those top 100 links, some of them might be completely useless, completely rubbish. But as long as those correct top 10 links are somewhere there sitting in top 100 link, I'll be fine. That is, after that, I can do refinements. The rough structure here would be that you will take, let's say, only first 64 dimensions or coordinates, or maybe only first 32 coordinates from MRL and do those retrieval of top 100 links. Once you have those top 100 links, to get the correct top 10 links, we can do then further rescoring based on full, let's say, 1024 dimensions and get like those things. And now because everything is nested, those embeddings are already computed and I have with me, right? So I can first say that, okay, for the first phase of getting top 100, I can use 32 dimensions. And then in the second phase of doing that rescoring, I can use full dimensionality. Sorry for cutting you. No, that, that was great. Great addition. And I, I want to thank rescoring and re-ranking. Are you referring to the same thing? Like some folks like take the initial uh, results and then they try to rank like what was the most appropriate ones. I think, it, it, does this represent the case that you guys are talking about where the initial information is not really necessary for the first re- responses? And then we're going to run another tool like Cohere. Sometimes those uh, folks do re-ranking with Cohere. And then you'll like judge th- the importance of those and then sort them in the secondary process. Yeah, that's pretty much, that's a relevant thing. But I think Joe Christian Bigham is in the call from Vespa. Like he's a proponent of late interaction. So you can do a lot of other re-ranking methods. But in this case, what Pratik specifically is saying is, let's say you recall with 64 dimensions and you can rescore with 1024. You can use the precise 1024 to just rescore in case you ever want to use it. And this is all from the same MRL embedding. All right. So, so moving on, I, I think Aditya, I heard you uh, say also that um, in in the use case of LLMs, for example, where again y- you guys build this before the kind of the explosion, uh, in use case of LLM and RAG, some amount of this is offset to the LLM itself. After you retrieve and you provide this data to LLM, it can do some of this work for you. Which I, I guess why uh, your work from a year ago or a couple of years ago found newfound relevance. But then you, I think you followed up with another paper a year ago and add ANN, right? Uh, could you talk about how this uh, applies to Matryoshka embeddings as well? I would love to hear additional work in this area that you guys did. Sure. When Pratik was talking about retrieval, he also mentioned that you typically do a nearest neighbor search. So the goal is when a query comes in, you embed it into the same space. Documents say, let's say a billion or encoded in the same space. Your target is to find, say, top 10 documents which are most relevant. And the way you do it is nearest neighbor search. So you just try to find which uh, vectors in your database are the closest for queries. 
but the thing is, again, as Pratik said, like the cost is directly proportional to the dimensionality as well as the number of data points. So it's linear in terms of number of data points and dimensionality. So to reduce this cost at web scale, so there is no way Google can ever serve things if everything is, every single data point has to be explicitly compared. So there's an idea called approximate nearest neighbors, which has been there for the last 25 years or so. The goal of approximate nearest neighbors is instead of touching all the 1 billion points to get top 10, I'm going to touch, say, something like 10,000. So I'm only going to search 10,000 by somehow partitioning the space and only cleverly looking at the places I want to look at and get to the 10,000. And in those 10,000, I'll do more exhaustive search and find the top 10. Okay. And this is approximate nearest neighbors. And the simplest way of thinking about approximate nearest neighbors is a tree structure. So you have a billion points, you basically are building a huge tree structure by using clustering. So a billion points can be clustered into 50,000 clusters, which can further be clustered into 50,000 each. And eventually your leaf nodes, like the final leaf node will have 100 data points in each of the leaf node. And this is a typical tree-based data structure, which a lot of people use for approximate nearest neighbors. In case anyone is interested, you can go check Phase library from Facebook. It's a very good resource for all of these things. This is approximate nearest neighbors and it plays very well with web scale systems. You want any of your embeddings to play well with approximate nearest neighbors if you want to scale to web visions while powerful. Can you hear me? Yeah, yeah we can hear you. Cut off for a second and now you're back. Okay. So Matryoshka representations, as Pratik said, again, like you can use 64 dimensions for shortlisting of 100 documents and re-ranking for, say, with 1024 to get the top 10. This is, while sound in principle, when you try to do this in systems-aware settings, this does not scale well because these 100 documents need not be sitting on the same machine. They need not be co-located. All of these things. There are so many systems considerations which start blowing up. And approximate nearest neighbors directly handles this. Approximate nearest neighbors ensures that similar documents are in similar chunk of your memory for your systems to take care of a lot of these things. So we wanted Matryoshka representations to power better approximate nearest neighbors. That's why we came up with ADANS or adaptive approximate nearest neighbor search. And the goal here is, again, it's when you're doing uh, approximate nearest neighbors from 1 billion to 50,000 clusters followed by 50,000, let's say you have a 1024 dimension embedding, you use the same 1024 embedding for every single one of these phases. But as we talked earlier, if you only care about recall, which your clustering is basically doing, what your clustering is saying is, look, I just need to be in the right cluster, right portion of your space, and that's pretty much I care about. So that's just recall. And if I'm able to do this clustering with 64 dimensions instead of 1024, I can save a lot of compute when I'm searching the space. Mm. And this is the idea. So at every single level of this tree, I'm going to change the dimensionality I'm going to use. Let's say 64, 128. And then finally, when I come to leaf node, when my query goes to the leaf, I'm going to precisely re-rank all these 100 data points or so with 1024. So there is going to be a precise re-ranking at the end. But all the intermediate steps, because they're already approximating, but only care about recall, can be approximated with a lower dimension embedding. You can... Traditionally, do this even without Matryoshka embeddings, but you need, again, postdoc compression, which is not pretty great. So Matryoshka representations just gives you this for free. So if you want 64 dimensions for the first phase of clustering, take the first 64. If you want 128 for the second phase of clustering, take the first 128. And that's the reason it becomes seamless, and that's what ADANS does. 
Uh, awesome. And I want to take this to the practical level a little bit. As far as I saw, Sentence Transformers from Hug and Face supports, supports this natively right now, right? You, you can import and you can mm-hmm. encode embeddings in different models. What other tools, since you guys started getting a lot of interest like, after this, both because of the LLM explosion, now everybody does RAG and everybody understands that RAG is one way to get these models to behave uh, as they want. What, what else, what other tools? You mentioned Fice. What other tools are now supporting something like this? Because on the face of it, it sounds very, very helpful very performant in in my head this sounds like uh, not necessarily direct but like similar to how quantization came and reduced the like uh, precision of models and basically they respond with the same precision but uh, they're significantly smaller so what other tools can folks find use in kamatroshka from what you you guys have heard yeah two clarifications phase does not use matryoshka right now but adance was built off of phase so yeah, that's a caveat. So they don't use Matryoshka at, at this point. Yeah, second thing you ask, quantization, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a very good point. Quant- quantization is a complementary thing. So think of quantization as flexibility in your bit precision, uh, while Matryoshka is preci- uh, flexibility in your dimensionality. So both of them can work hand in hand even after this. So you can quantize any Matryoshka embedding and it will still play well with quantization. So that's the beauty of this, right? Until now, we are only re- reducing the precision of uh, uh, the uh, numbers, and now you can also reduce the vector itself. So that's very good. Coming to the repositories and other stuff which are using, of course, Sentence Transformer, I think, is going to be the easiest way in. I, I went through the implementation day before yesterday. It's pretty clean. It just works out of the box. Nomic uh, released the V for 1.5. If anyone wants to go and look at it inside, again, it's 10 lines of code beautifully written and i think it's much more understandable in case someone wants to get into the weeds so that is one thing uh, we have our own repository which we released like a couple of years ago but the nice thing about Matryoshka is if you want to train something it's literally a for loop it's four lines of code so the code is already in the paper if someone wants to go and implement it it's you just look at the paper there will be a code in i think page 12 or something five lines you just go and implement it apart from that i think transformer js was supporting a bunch of these re-ranking visualizations and hugging face. But yeah, like for now, I think these are the things we know which are supporting. Adance, I don't think anyone is supporting at this moment. It's just our code base, which is out there. Mm-hmm. It's also not highly optimized for low level things. So I wouldn't recommend you directly use it for your use cases, but it's a great thing for you to prototype and see how well you could benefit from this flexibility in retrieval space. So I just want to make sure that we shout out properly AI, the folks that have the Atlas platform to visualize and they down down sample, I think you said, like they lower the dimensionality to into 2D or 3D space to actually show dimensions. They released Nomic Embed 1.5 recently, like a fully open source embedding models end-to-end and they're great. And now they're also supporting um, Matryoshka, which is great. I also heard you say that quantization directly applies here as well. So you can like... I don't know the, the verbiage of this, like you can matryoshka something and quantize a model and this will resort to a significantly smaller and uh, like smaller weights. So that's great. You also mentioned the Transformers.js, which is a hug and face library, the author of which 
Joshua Zanova is here in the audience with us, friends of the pod, uh, that supports uh, supports uh, this as well. Uh, folks, we're uh, slowly running out of time a little bit. I wanted to thank you for coming up. It, it, it often happens when folks who, who build something uh, come up and talk to us. It doesn't often happen in something that released a few years ago that now resurfaces in popularity and then we're able to highlight some folks' works. So Aditya and, and Pritik, I really want to thank you. Anything else that you want to mention before we uh, before I recap the whole space, feel free to. Definitely not a full deep dive, but I really wanted to highlight the fact that your work is now represented also in like one of the big libraries in the world in terms of AI, and many folks can now understand what is this parameter that they do when they adjust dimensionality in OpenAI's embedding models. I think Nomic, the reason why I say this is a straightforward implementation is Nomic released their V1, and then Matryoshka became a thing. So they literally trained this entire thing in three days and with all of their data. So it's extremely simple, and they actually had to not change a single hyperparameter. So it's pretty good. I would like to see if Pratik wants to add anything, but otherwise, thank you for having me here. Thank you, Aditya. And it was uh, pretty accurate. Thanks so much for having us here. Awesome. So, yeah. And for Go ahead, For anybody else in the audience, sorry, I've posted the links as to what you can do with this. So it's Zenova's demo when you can use it in Transformers.js. And also we look forward to actually implementing the paper too. Because again, this is not a very well-known or well-discussed subject in general. So I'm very happy to have been able to host you guys and you have a paper out, I think it was in Europe's and see, seeing more from the space of embeddings because there, there's more to come here and many people are now using this in big production. Probably it was used in Rex's before, but now in big LLM related production stuff. And the more folks understand retrieval and fine tuning retrieval and also ways to cut costs like Matryoshka, for example, it would be great. So shout out to, to, to you guys. Definitely thank for working on this and coming and showing, giving light. I'm very happy that you did get the dimension in the open open AI. And I'm also I'm happy that I noticed because of this and was able to talk to you guys and figure out what Matryoshka embeddings are. And if folks want more deeper deep dives, this is what was like very surface level. Aditya and Pratik, you guys did a paper paper club with latent space yesterday and before that uh, both with the podcast talked about Motoshka embeddings connor was here before you guys just missed him and also hugging face i think this put this link up hugging face has a very nice deep dive from omar and zenova about Motoshka embeddings and what they mean and how to use them in sentence transformers all right folks this has been our thursday eye for today I will now take a deep breath and recap everything we've talked about. If you've been here for the past two hours and some, you've probably heard all of this, but if not, feel free to stick around and it's probably going to take me like eight minutes or so and then I'm going to let you go. With that, this is our Thursday eye for February 29th, leap year, February 29th, like once in four years. I find it pretty funny and I, I think it was a, a great space. We didn't have any, Nistan, no breaking news today, right? I wasn't monitoring well, but I didn't see GPT-5 didn't release while I was talking, right? Nope, no, nope, not yet. Not yet. We did get one piece of breaking news that we didn't notice as we were recording the live stream. And that was from our friends in Modular. If you remember, we've talked about Modular and their new programming language, Mojo, which is a superset of Python. And uh, the creator, Chris Latner, who was previously the LLVM and MLIR compiler author and also the creator of Swift uh, in Apple. And uh, we've talked about Mojo being the right language for AI and they just released their inference engine called Max 
to the world in beta. And this inference engine supposedly has Mojo built in and supposedly is way faster even for existing models uh, to run inference. So that's very interesting. And we're going to talk about more as we, as we play around with this. All right, folks. And I think this was all we talked about on Thursday I, on February 29th. And I want to just thank uh, everybody who joined. Nistan, thank you as always, uh, a co-host. Uh, Yam was here before, and we had uh, uh, Bo join for a while, even though we didn't say hi. Uh, we have a bunch of other folks. So thank you for all the guests. Thank you, all of you, for listening and tuning in from week to week. Uh, it's really a pleasure. And now with this, I'm just going to end here. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next week. Cheers.